You're listening to the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Top Woman Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Top Woman. Business Unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through the podcast, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And, and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Good day and welcome to Topco Business Unusual podcast. And today I'm joined by um, Janine Allers. I mean, I, I, I spelt it, said it correctly. She's the, the CEO or the academic director for the Center for Coaching at GSB. She's got a whole lot of qualifications. They were too long to even mention. And you teach violin. Uh, I have a violin teaching qualification, but I don't teach anymore. I just play okay. this. Yeah. Yeah. And is there a relationship between music, playing the violin, and is it de-stressing? Is it creativity? Someone said it is a link to maths. A lot of, a lot of brilliant mathematicians, Einstein played the violin. A lot of uh, maths and music goes very well together. Think of all that counting you've got to do. Um, and rhythm. It's all and rhythm. rhythm. Yeah. Rhythm as well. Rhythm. And but are, are you good at maths then? No, I was. Uh, and then I had it. I failed engineering. And since then, I can't do maths anymore. So. Um, so you've been running the center since 2002. But before that, you were in corporate. So it's interesting because your clients are all in corporate. So I'm not sure if you feel sorry for them. You empathize. <laughs> or you leave their offices and you're like, Okay, I'm glad it's their problem and not mine. Something like that. Something like that. You, you got it. I think it's, it gives me a window. It, I have an, a, a physical memory of the corporate world. I used to work a lot with listed companies doing investor relations and annual reports and financial printing stuff. So I had a lot of window into all levels of organizations. And um, yeah, I, I empathize. I Are you glad you're an entrepreneur now? Mm, yes. So, I mean, we were talking just before we started recording and we were talking around how the world's been turned upside down. And I know that you were saying that you almost had to start up a new organization yeah. since the 23rd of March. I thought it was the 24th, but you're a day ahead of me. So I was obviously asleep that day. Um, so what have you seen as the biggest changes? I mean, to, to what, you, what you do? Yeah. So look, I'd say for, for us as a business, we had to move in, overnight from being 100% face-to-face, um, you know, personal connection organization in terms of the way we taught and worked into 100% virtual. So that uh, has been an extraordinary journey. <clears throat> and I think um, I've, I've noticed how adaptable and how amazing human beings are when when they are you know put into that kind of uh corner and they just have to do it so even even myself i'll say that um it was challenging we spent about a month just running around or just 
frozen really looking and trying to understand how we could do what we do online but what is amazing is people have been so generous just all over the world i attended um webinars and uh, zoom meetings and tr trainings people have been doing for free mm. all over the world that where how to teach embodiment for example on zoom how mm. do you teach um you know leadership leadership skills that that you have to do physical movements with on zoom how mm. do you work with people on zoom in a way so well we use zoom uh, it doesn't have to mm. be but how do you work with people so that you can reach their hearts and their bodies as well as their minds how do you connect and um we have found that if if you're skillful in the way you use this medium you can actually have an even stronger personal connection an even richer um uh, internal dialogue and even more profound learning experience online than you do in person and there's some interesting reasons for that because you you're at home right so you're in the quiet and a lot of people said you know we used to run workshops where you'd go into pairs and you coach each other and observe and they said they never realized how much that chatter that you would filter out and you'd think it wasn't bothering you when there isn't that chat and it's just you and the other person you go into your breakout room you do your thing you come back you converse they said it's much deeper and richer learnings than before so, I mean, have you learned how to connect better? Because, I mean, that is a big thing, right? How do we connect better through these programs? Mm. Is there any polls that you've seen that smile or wear red? <laughs> wear red, that's a good start. <laughs> right. Um, you know what? Um, not just me, but so many of my coaches who are in the executive world have said that for the first time, they've actually had to learn how to listen. Because in the past, people used to talk over each other quite often. Now, it's actually impossible. You can't. You have to stop and let somebody say they say and finish. You have to indicate. You have, you know, one, people have learned, had to learn how to actually listen to each other. And um, they've said it's actually slowed things down. It's made meetings more productive. Uh, a lot of introverted leaders who I've worked with who, who used to struggle to do the morning, you know, let... Uh, meet and greet with their nightmare. Mm. Now they would happily have um, Zoom meetings with people. They connect more powerfully now with their teams than they've ever done in the past. And mm. they're enjoying it. So mm. people who struggle with with face-to-face -face connection have found that they are doing much more face-to-face -face interaction than they ever did before, but they're feeling comfortable. Mm. Um, and when I look at the neuroscience behind this, and because coaching, the, we were saying earlier, there's a science behind coaching. Mm. And I find it fascinating to look at not only how does the philosophy of coaching and the underlying theory uh, work, but how does it link with the neuroscience? And mm. so um, a lot can be said for many people being outside their home environment has felt unsafe and so and, and so they're unsettled and then connecting is very difficult so we mustn't underestimate the fact that when people are in their home space they're in a quiet room one hopes you know if they can um and they're able to focus and they and they feel um contained that yeah. people who previously struggled to connect are having no difficulty whatsoever wow. um, yeah, so which is fascinating. So one of the other things that was really clear was that when COVID hit, there was this uncertainty and, and this anxiousness amongst leaders, everybody. And it was also almost okay to be human and talk about your shortcomings or how you felt. I mean, have you found that this drives really into the coaching culture of then you know, understanding what you're in control of and what you're not in control on? Do you, do you think it's sort of driven a stronger co coaching, coaching culture within corporates or? Well, um, so I'll cite an example that came from a, a, an HR person who called me about, um, uh, she, was, she works with a lot of team leaders and she said, it's extraordinary. Those team leaders who have set up 
sort of extra little coffee chats or extra little moments where they connect with their people online, obviously, but, mm -hmm. but, um, and take a moment to find out more about the person and, and to find out about their home environment and so on. Those are the ones where those teams are actually, actually coping incredibly well. Um, but where there are leaders who have tried to remain very transactional and just, you know, you get online, it's like, let's just talk the business and go. Those teams have, have really struggled. And so I became curious about that. I started asking around um, amongst other organizations, and it does seem to be a theme, is that um, there's, a, there's a strong need from people to have some kind of personal uh, touch point around what situation they're having at home, you know, uh, whether it's how much time they have, do they have children, don't they, you know, mm -hmm. and just checking in with that. It seems to be very, very important, which of course is indeed much more of what a coaching culture is, is suggesting. Coaching culture has always said, look at the human being that you're working with. Treat yourself as a human being, not as a walking machine, which a lot of people do. They drive themselves into the ground. Mm -hmm. um, but So self-care is critical. But then also you, you're working with human beings, not, not um, you know, walking hands. Yeah. I think it was um, Paddy Upton. I did a podcast with him and he yes. was talking about like cricketers and he was saying the analogy for him was that um, leaders, when you normally come to work, a leader expects you to be ready, ready and able. You've come to the battlefield, like, you know, you, you've come and you're right. But with COVID, you don't even know how people are coping with connectivity, their environment, their home life. So you trying to expect a certain um, value from someone or, or, you know, outcome but they're not even in that moment to be able to deliver that for you. So you also as a leader, you need to be checking in to know who's ready to do what needs to be done and who isn't ready. So it, it brings some dynamics. I went to your two day coaching program or maybe it was three. Um, and I think it was a two and it was, and, and it was nicely set up for me because I thought I would be a great coach. I thought that's it. I'm going to be a great coach. But what I actually found was being a bit of a know-it-all and, and um, being quite solution-orientated, I think I struggled the most with coaching because I, I'm not sure how many people know, but for me, the, the difference between being a good coach and an advisor or a mentor is a, a little bit different. Being a coach is being a good listener, and you said that at the beginning, but it's listening without a viewpoint. It's listening to get the other person to talk not as opposed to me giving my advice or insights in what they should do. <laughs> do you still think that's one of the hardest areas for a coach to overcome is that is at least I know, right? At least I know yeah. what coming is. At least, you know, I think that is out of all of them. It impacts everything. The need to give advice, the need to feel relevant, um, and the need to feel like I'm not doing anything if I'm not um, giving something, contributing some form of direction. And I, I, would, I, would, I would urge you to not say um, not giving advice does not mean I have no opinions. All we're saying actually is don't give advice straight away. Mm. By all means, give advice later if mm. it's necessary. It's just that nine times out of 10, if you stay long enough in a conversation and you find out more about the other person and you find out what they're thinking and what they've tried before and what are they really looking for? And can you just repeat back and make sure you've heard what they've said? Nine times out of 10, they actually realize that they talk, they process as they talk to you and they get the insight for themselves. Mm. But it doesn't mean you can't give advice later. That's all we're saying. So it doesn't, I think people misunderstand and they say, oh, coaching isn't for me because people are going to want to get uh, information from me. I'm a leader. I can't just not tell people anything. Mm -hmm. And what we're saying, there's a big difference between doing formal one-on-one -on -one coaching where you are, you know, the professional coach and, uh, you know, with mm -hmm. my coaches, I will very, very, very rarely give them advice. And whenever I do, I always regret it afterwards anyway. So I always go, that's why. But that's a different thing. Most people um, in, in the corporate world or in business, they want a coaching style. They want to work with a coaching, lead in a coaching way. Yeah. And then what we say is, yeah, just listen a little more deeply. Ask 
-hmm. Ask, give yourself a target, say, ask two or three extra more questions than you would normally do. And it's all about questions. It's asking good questions, the right questions. Because I mean, and, and finding yourself not making statements, but asking questions. The, the, the one for me that always throws me up, if I'm good or not, is my children. So my 13-year-old, my 16-year-old, my 20-year-old, inevitably anything I ever advise, they'll probably do the opposite. So, um, and I find it sometimes, it's almost like the game is to try and find questions where I'm not giving them advice. It's often a little bit harder than just asking questions. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Yeah. So leading questions actually, they actively irritate people. So the thing we try and encourage leaders is don't pretend that you're open and curious. If you are like, I've got to get the person there. I'm going to ask all these questions to make sure they get to where I want them to go. Then just tell them where you want them to go. Don't manipulate. Don't try and manipulate a conversation. That's frustrating for both of you. Yeah. So be authentic as well, right? It's that genuine curiosity. I'd, I'd yeah. say your biggest friend, if you were talking about leading in a coaching way, is genuine yeah. curiosity. So I think what helped many people now with COVID is that we are, we, we've discovered we're genuinely curious about our colleagues and what's going on in their homes so that mm-hmm. that means they can or can't work because mm-hmm. each person's system, um, situation is different. And I've discovered that many leaders have said to me that they, they don't struggle anymore to feel curious about what's going on for the person because A, it gives a direct input on what they can and cannot produce, but B, uh, you know, it's, it's really relevant and it's different. They can't guess what's going on for that yeah. person. I mean, we, we, I spoke a little bit earlier with you and I was saying that I feel like a lot of management practices for me, don't seem to be as relevant as moving towards a coaching culture. And so, and I think there's been a lot of evidence, Gallup did an article where they said, or a big finding where they said, leadership is the most important part of an organization. The reason is because they create a coaching culture with the employees that drives out this improved trust, uh, performance, every, every, every indicator sort of improves if you have a coaching culture. Is that what you're seeing? I mean, are you seeing it now more than before or are you seeing it being adapted more? I'm seeing people talk about it deliberately as, as a way of coping with COVID. I would say it's a bit early to say, has anybody's culture literally shifted to a coaching culture? Mm-hmm. Because uh, these things, you know, take time. But I've seen a, a, a definite, um, I don't know, a focus uh, that people realize they can't just uh, tell, tell, tell. It's it, it, in this environment, it's too exhausting. And actually, they don't know. So perhaps the single biggest gift that COVID has given is that people have had to lean on each other and to lean on very other staff members in new ways because the bosses didn't have the answers. They didn't plan this. It wasn't in the strategic this, this, this. And so they had no idea. And for once in their lives, they actually felt comfortable saying, I don't know. I actually don't know. What do you think? And I think that has opened the doorway to a two-way flow that has allowed leaders to perhaps feel less um, that it's all on their shoulders mm-hmm. and, and staff or people, you know, colleagues to feel, actually, let me make suggestions. Um, it hasn't always worked. So I, I, I must say, uh, in, from a coaching perspective, almost every one of the senior leaders I've worked with feels an enormous burden of pressure to be uh, and uh, two things an enormous burden of pressure to be seen as being i'm okay i'm coping i'm here for you i'm going to listen to you i'm going to support you you know and but who do they talk to so um more and more people we're getting an upsurge in requests for coaching from senior people because it's like where do they go when they are feeling drained Often people are working much longer hours now. I've certainly, I can say, I've worked harder in this last lockdown than I've done. You know, I can't remember that. Well, perhaps when we were setting up the center in, you know, 19 years ago, maybe then. But more fun. 
Yeah, I was younger then too. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't, you had to do it today. You have to get it done today. It was like, let's see. But I mean, just going back to the science of coaching, is it not that as well? Do you think that maybe people need to just get some coaching and be, you know, get your experience because there is a science because you can almost you can make mistakes easily if you're not following the process like i find that if you follow good processes that are well laid out and you've got the foundation and you stick to those things you'll have success but as humans what we often try and do is like ignore the process and we try and bring our own element of innovation to it and we sort of don't get the same results is it is it that as well you know, I'd, I'd like to, uh, yes, and I'd, what I would say is, is more critical even is that if we look at the science is that people are actually in a state of trauma. Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a new word for it. I don't know if you know. It's called, mm-hmm. um, what's it called? Uh, future. I wrote it down. I saw it. I thought I'm going to share this. It's called future-based uh, trauma. Okay. So, um because instead of post-traumatic stress, it's future traumatic stress. And it's, it's, it's because nobody knows what's happening. So we are futurizing all the time. Mm-hmm. And th- there's no certainty in the world at all at the moment. So people's levels of stress are, are high and they are not um, settling into certainties. And so what we found is that working with people's nervous system is absolutely critical. I will always work with somebody to say, what's happening for you uh, physically? How are you feeling? And then techniques for slowing people down and settling their nervous system. Because when our nervous system is in a level of anxiety or stress or, or, or trauma, this kind of trauma, our capacity to listen, our capacity to be curious, our capacity to connect is deeply compromised. So um, that's one, you know, huge priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the other thing is that our emotional state, I don't know if you've noticed, but people's emotional ups and downs are, mm-hmm. are wider. So I have... When I go cycling, I see that motorists now want to attack me when I'm cycling more than before. Okay, that's very interesting. <laughs> different because there's fewer cars on the road. But, you know... Look at how people are protesting, um, not so much here, but in the US. Uh, look at the, the sort of eruptions of anger and so on. When I look at so many people are having arguments, um, business arguments, the tensions because nobody knows. And so there's a lot of um, n- nervous energy in the system, which means people's emotions spike very quickly and they go down and and so there's a freeze or depression or a slowness that can also hit so um we you know i often work with people and say if you have an amplitude of a a normal range that's like this uh, you know we're kind of going in and out of that normal range a lot more than we used to because there's no way of discharging we used to discharge we'd walk to a meeting or we drive and drive get in the car and drive to the next place and without realizing it you'd oh you'd see the sky and you take a breath and go, okay, chill. What, you know, something would distract you. You'd settle yourself. Now we go from one meeting to the next. We don't change our environment. Um, you know, one of our teaching tools we do is we take a 10 minute break every hour, every hour before you get tired. And every single person says, you know, this is the first time anybody's ever doing this with us. And I feel fresh at the end of the day. And I'm like, imagine if you ran your meetings taking a 10 minute break, um, 10 minutes to the hour every time. What do they do in the 10 minutes? Is it like for well, mindfulness? Is it, is it trying, to, I mean, meditation I find quite difficult as well, by the way, because all, all these thoughts come in your mind. But Well, you know what? Um, uh, I, got, I saw this most beautiful definition that the Dalai Lama apparently said of mindfulness, which it's actually non-judgmental observation. Mm. it's not necessarily meditation so it's with three components attention awareness and remembering non-judgmental observation with attention awareness and remembering so what we do is we say to people go and make yourself a a, a cup of tea but Mm. do it with full awareness feel your feet on the floor notice Mm. the warmth of the cup 
taste the tea when mm. you have it. Uh, and then when we come back, sometimes we do a little stretch. We say, mm. but even that, you know, just go and walk outside. Feel, if you can, feel the grass, if you have grass. Um, you know, do something um, that mm. engages one of your other senses. Because the problem is this is a strong visual auditory environment. Mm. And you are not engaging our other senses mm. um, much at all. Where, again, once again, in a, in a normal environment, it's far more stimulating to the other senses as well. So yeah, those little 10 minutes, yeah, I promise. And the other thing is so many companies do not switch on their videos and they could. It's not that they don't have the bandwidth. It's like it's company policy. Hmm? Do you think it's good or bad to put on the video? It's good. You must. You, you should. You should. We, went, we were doing the podcast without video and I said to Tim, no, I want to see the people, even if it is a podcast, Yes. And often I'll go to, to meetings and I'll put on my video so everybody can see me, but there'll be no one else with it yep. on. But I'll be like, I, I'm, I'm okay. And then someone texts me like, no, Ralph, turn off your video. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll turn it off now. But I mean, one of the things that I often feel is that we get this great pearls of wisdom from people like you. So I'm like, wow. And the, the other thing I see is that we do it for a little while and then we forget it. So I'm always thinking, how can we help people? So one of the conferences that we did maybe 20 years ago was about white collar crime. And the advice that they gave us was often if you put up like a poster in the office, but you're, you're not in the office, maybe you're at home with some key reminders, like maybe they need to put it up on their wall, right? 10 minute break every, almost like a goal. Cause it needs, this needs to be a goal because everything else will flow from this. Yes. And, and, you know, so as, as integral coaches, we work very strongly in the area of unconscious patterns of behavior. When it becomes an accepted norm, an unconscious habit, basically a habit, it's something. So I just, you know, every hour I'll kind of, I'll start, you know, I'll, I'll feel, oh, okay, it's time for a break. And then we're, okay, just 10 minutes. Maybe if we're a bit rushed, we'll say, okay, just five minutes, you know, what's a quick body break. But it becomes, uh, your, your body becomes used to it. So, you know, and so we always say we can become aware of as many things as we want. We can have as many ideas as we want. But until it's uh, brought into your behavioral pattern, change won't take place. So, and it's not just I do it once or twice. Um, the danger with a goal is, you know, can I tick it and then forget it? Versus saying, I want to bring a new pattern of behavior into my life. Um, what will that be? And then uh, one of those might be, or a new pattern of behavior to the team, new pattern of behavior to the organization. Um, and I know companies where uh, I've spoken to people about what is it that makes you not put your videos on um, when in fact it makes the world of difference to connect to faces as well as the voice. What's wrong with putting the video on? Sometimes there's a, there's a technical reason like bandwidth. But nowadays, especially with senior teams, there is no reason to not have your video on, actually. What are we afraid of? Um, you know, and it's a real question. What's, what, because I think people have become now so used to just talking with no visual, that they almost... Um, it feels a bit difficult to put the video on. Mm. Or lazy. Um, but I mean, that goes to the, to the, to what, almost the center of coaching, which is what you are, but it's around how do we change people or how, not how do we change? Cause I think that's the other <laughs> insight I got was that in fact, I tell my children, I know one thing, I know that I cannot change you. So I'm, I've got that like ticked. I cannot change you as much as I want to. And I love you and I'm your dad. And I think I know better. I actually know that I can't change you, but, but to build those good habits, that's also really difficult. I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you find the best way to build habits in either teams or individuals? It's certainly something yeah. I've struggled with. I, I try and put like sticky notes on, my mirrors and you know there's a, a you know i try and write notes in the book and all sorts of things yeah i mean it is something when we are coaching people we have we devote a, a whole section of the conversation to who is going to support you and when we say support it's who's going to remind you to do it who's going to work with you to care who gives a damn whether you do this pattern or not and so this is where i'm um, reaching out 
uh, and, and connecting with others and involving others in whatever the new pattern of behavior you're trying to put in place. It, it don't think you'll be able to do it completely on your own. A lot of people are so self-isolating. They think any change for me must be done by me, kind of almost without telling others. So involve others. Make it, um, you know, move the accountability around if you're in a team. You know, say, okay, this week it's each week a different person will make sure that we do X. Don't think that as a team if you decide, okay, from now on, we'll take breaks every 10 minutes. If you don't appoint somebody as the breaks monitor, it's, you're all going to forget. Or somebody might remember, then they go, oh, but this is an important point. Maybe I won't say anything. It's kind of name it, name it, share it. And yes, use visual aids. Um, uh, talk about also what is, what might be underlying your uh, stoppage. So if there's a habit where you continuously, you think I want to do this, but you can't, there'll mm -hmm. always be something underneath that that's getting in the way. Sure. And I mean, I don't know if you read the book, The Trillion Dollar Coach. Have you read it? I have not. No. Bill Campbell. Have you heard of Bill okay. Campbell or not? I've heard of him, but I have not read his book. So, I mean, I read the book and it was quite intriguing. And it was about the guys at Google actually wrote about him. So he's not... He, he died and so they wrote about him i think just before he died maybe but i think it was after he died they released the book because he would not tell anyone his secrets for coaching or why he was a coach but they they called him the trillion dollar coach because they they basically said that he must take the credit for the growth that both apple and google grew in the way that he added value to those organizations he moved people and teams together to achieve things that in many ways people thought wasn't possible i think that's why they're so ingrained in their culture is this coaching culture mm. what, what would you say because i've got a view of what a coaching culture is what would you what would you but i don't know anything like as much as you do so what would you say is like what is how would you build a coaching culture or what are the what are the elements to a coaching culture Yes, you know, I, I must say, I did some work with some people in Singapore recently before lockdown and from Google and um, Apple and Facebook and stuff. And they invest huge amounts. I'll just give you, you know, each person above a certain level gets a certain number of thousands of dollars to decide how they're going to spend it on their own personal development. So there's a huge um, attention on personal awareness and personal development so that so they were coming and attending the course i was running because it was it's the you know course on how to coach more properly because they had learned informally but yeah. but so there's attention there's um investments not going to happen without you know yeah. but then it's also about saying can we declare the norms you know the coaching culture i think Oh, I mean, we started working with that um, in in large organizations doing rollouts uh, uh, in 2004. And we also learned, well, 2002, actually, we started. And that was before anyone knew what coaching was. And mm -hmm. we, we made mistakes. So, for example, we thought everybody must learn how to coach and leaders must just coach all the time. We were like big uh, evangelists of coaching. And it's like, this will solve all your problems. And they did get a coaching culture going, Ralph, but it became a, an organization where people weren't able to make decisions very quickly and it, things started kind of stalling. And people were like, no, there must be more to leadership than just being a coaching yeah. leader. So the coaching culture taken too far isn't also not so we've changed our, our the way we talk about it and we say it's more it's more yes of a, a coaching approach um mm -hmm. which means that you don't always like with advice it's not that you don't ever give advice but mm -hmm. can you listen more deeply first um mm -hmm. you know can you have powerful conversations direct how do you have a direct conversation with somebody in a coaching way mm -hmm. How do you rebuild trust in a coaching way? How do you really ad address a performance issue in a coaching way? And so what, what we've realized is that a lot of people get the theory, but they don't understand how, how to do it. The literal conversational steps, the literal, how do I prepare and what are the key things I must think about 
before I go and do that. And do you cover that in your programs? That's what, when you're designing and implementing the programs, you're going through, and, and what are the critical hows? What are the, the, the main, like, go, the, the main chunks that you see? The main area is that um, people need and want to um, engage. Um, people don't know how to converse. So they know, they understand I need to be nice, but they don't know how to do it. They don't know how um, to actually structure a conversation. So we tend to focus on a kind of a deeper understanding of what it means to be a human being. So mm -hmm. what is it that makes each person's world or each person's way of being as valid as yours? And so people need, uh, a lot of bosses walk around going, if you're not like me, there's something wrong with you. If you don't mm. see what I see, there's something mm. wrong with you. Um, you must be stupid or you're not dedicated or you're lazy. Mm. And so what we work on with people is to say, actually, imagine you lived in a world where every single human being was unique, mm. equally valid, and um, everything that person is doing makes perfect sense to them. So your job as a leader is to get curious about that and say, I wonder what makes this person feel that screaming at a client or a customer is, makes perfect sense because to them in that moment, it's making, it's the only thing they, they, they do. So because nobody behaves in a way that doesn't make sense to them in that moment. So, so it's kind of almost, that's the mindset thing. But then we realize mindset's not enough. We have to actually have the skills. So there's quite a lot of rigor and structure that we work through. It's kind of how do we do these things? Um, how do we speak to somebody with the, in a way that generates mutual respect and trust? And like now, how do you work with the team online and virtually so that you can help them settle you can help them calm down. If emotions run high, you don't get alarmed by that because emotions are running high. People are in a stress situation and they can't um, regulate themselves like they used to. So how do you give them practices, things to do to regulate themselves? So we kind of try and make everything we do with, with groups or individuals or organizations incredibly uh, sensible pragmatic it has to have a result so good coaching is is will always say what is the outcome you're striving for and mm. and will notice when you actually get there so um this interested me about the mindset this sort of growth mindset fixed mindset you've probably read carol drake's book i don't know if you did or not um have you read it Love mindset there's a whole process and she talks around this growth mindset and this fixed mindset and she's talking around how almost this, this, this growth mindset is more aligned to adaptability and this adaptability quotient where you look at a problem as an opportunity, not mm. as a problem as a bad thing. And, and I often think that, so the growth mindset is probably a little bit more open-minded maybe it's linked to that and and i wonder i spoke to the guys at old mutual and they were telling me around their um investment in education and what they did is they invested in the worst performing schools in south africa around the regions and they were able to double the pass rate of matriculants in the worst performing schools and they did that by supporting with coaching and mentoring mm -hmm. the leadership and principal so it wasn't the teachers, it wasn't the scholars, they weren't investing in them. And I read something else about this, but they invested in the leadership. But the only thing he said is that they had to be wanting to be coachable and helped, right? That was the proviso. So they could do it as long as they wanted that. How, how is it, can you change that? Can you coach someone to being coached? <laughs> we spoke earlier and I was saying, I know a couple of coaches and their partners are like, oh, they laugh at coaching. It's almost like it is a, it's an odd disease you've got if you want to be coached, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, yeah, that is one thing we say. I, uh, people need to be ready and want to be coached because, because why? You're asking that person to, to go within. 
You're asking them to share what's really going on with them. And if somebody doesn't want to go inside of themselves, if they don't want to, to look inside and work with themselves, then you can't coach them. Well, yeah. And do you think that that happens? Like, I'm just thinking of people that I might know and I'm trying to relate it. Is that it could be a certain thing that they don't want to because it's personal and it hurts? Or do you think it's, it's overall that you can help them in maybe different elements? Have you, have you found that you... Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've coached people who've said, look, I, I, this is pure business. I'm never going to tell you anything about my family, for instance. I worked in the, in the Ukraine where um, I spoke to a Russian man whose father had been in the KGB and he said, I know what people in HR do with this kind of information and I will never share a single thing about me personally with you. So I thought, oh my word, you know, I didn't. so it was quite, you know, extreme. But yeah. uh, we actually worked very powerfully with only how he was at work and, yeah. you know, what was going on for him. And he was willing to look to a certain extent, but he's an example of somebody who would never admit a vulnerability. So I had to send him away to reflect and then to use those reflections to come back to me with ideas. And then he would not tell me his reflections about himself, but he wanted to do the work. It's just, he was, he was very paranoid about sharing anything too personal. So, so it's possible to do that kind of work. Um, one-on-one. -on -one. But, but yeah. as long as, if they say, listen, I don't want to get personal, that you still ask the questions, but it's just not, they divulge the answers necessarily to you. you can they, still may not, they may not tell you everything. They'll tell you the surface. But the, the secret in coaching is that people don't stop thinking about what you ask them about in this, mm -hmm. you know, they carry on thinking about it because if it's a powerful question, they're like, gosh, you know, what, what, what is driving me at this point? And they may not share it with you. But uh, often we say that the most value comes out of coaching between sessions, not actually in the moment. That's not always where the big ahas happen. And what have you known as your best coaching question? What's been your best coaching question? Oh. Well, top three, top three. Like powerful three. ones where you get the feedback and people say, wow, you got me there. I didn't mm. stop thinking about it. That's a tricky one, uh, Ralph, because it's so... Um, I don't have like a repertoire of stand. I don't have like standard questions that I use. I um, listen to somebody and then uh, it emerges based on what they've just said. So what I've discovered is people will go, Oh my goodness. That's a if, when I've really listened deeply and I've allowed the question to, to bubble up inside of me based on what they've said, yeah. rather than having a canned set of yeah. questions. I mean, for, for me, one of the things from an organizational and a personal perspective, it was Simon Sinek's book, that why purpose, purpose-driven companies, purposeful people, linking happiness to purpose. So you finding that's a big element because I struggled with that myself for the organization. Like, why do we exist? What are we about? Like, it, it, that consumed me as a question. And I think it probably, I'd imagine it consumes a lot of other people. Do you find that's a big question that you get quite often it's a big question and i'll tell you what it's coming up hugely now because uh, i've had people and I, i'm facing it myself is who am i mm. who am i when i'm not the high-flying executive that travels mm. all over the world that's seen and you know you, you have all these experiences who am i when i sit at home in front of a screen when so much of my identity and life has been involved in being having this public persona mm. and i'm coaching some people who are really public personas and and they are having i'm relieved to say they're having as much of an existential crisis because you know at a certain point just because one's a coach it doesn't mean you know you've got it all sorted but people are struggling with this mightily because what gives us our sense of meaning purpose and identity has been how we've configured our lives up to now for many people. Mm. And suddenly that's just been ripped away. Mm. So who am I now? So, the, so the, often that's the question that I coach people with when they are about to retire um, or, or they have just retired and suddenly they're not the executive. They haven't got a secretary to do everything mm. for them. They, you know, they, they suddenly have to make their own appointments. It's like, I don't know how I have time to work. 
because I spend my whole life doing stuff. I'm busy. But, you know, where did I fit work in to, to life before? Uh, some of them say, but others of them struggle to find meaning. So I would say it's a massive question that people mm. are dealing with uh, right now. And mm. perhaps the only thing I can share is that the, is you're not going to find it out there. I think mm. because we are forced into this stillness, mm. it's like this is this, this is you're traveling within, you're traveling inside of yourself. And if you don't, uh, by nature, find it easy to go within and to process and to kind of reflect and so on, then find somebody who you can work with would be my huge um, invitation to people is find somebody who you can partner with, whether it's a coach or a therapist or, or somebody who you trust, um, who can help you actually unpack, who am I now? In this world, in, in, assuming we're never going back to what we were, um, who am I? So, I mean, so, some of the other things I know that you do coaching all over the world, and I'd imagine some of them are linked to South Africans. And so, I, I often have this sense that South Africans really are quite resilient and amazing business people outside of South Africa. And you don't see it so much, you take it for granted, I think, within South Africa. Mm. But that's my assumption, and but I've never worked with the people outside of South Africa. So, what is your experience? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question because i i have I have grown more and more proud of being South African um, the more I travel. So, you know, it, we are known as being exceptionally hardworking, exceptionally mm. resilient, and and certainly. Um, in Europe, where there's this whole thing around, uh, you know, transformation and diversity, so the agility, innovation, and uh, um, uh, the diversity, which yeah. for them is more on the gender base. But yeah. South Africans are actually sought after because we have no, you have no idea how incredible it is. You can visibly see how South African leaders are so much more flexible so much more um, able to adapt to chaos and change, so much more open to other peoples and other voices and to listening to diverse uh, um, um, points of view. That yeah. They get sought after because they don't fall over at the first, you know, they don't get dislodged by change and, and difficulties. We kind of stand up and go, okay, there's a problem. What are we going to do to fix it? We don't get stuck um and and there's a fragility to um first world countries i must say it, it, there really is that it's it's quite astonishing it it really um yeah the more coaching i do in the first world the more i realize why we are highly valued as leaders it's it's incredible we don't realize how amazing we are in fact we've got a phrase we, we call we're the silicon valley of emotions you are. <laughs> That's other things. So, I mean, one of the things that I look at is like our productivity as a country is not as high as some of the other countries. And I sort of wonder why there is that because you've got these great leaders, but you also got these amazing companies. You look at the, like the performance index of return on equity amongst some of our top companies in South Africa. It's the highest in the world over a hundred year period, a 10 year period or a 20 year period. So we do have this outstanding performance in our organizations, but it's often not, I don't think, reflected enough. I, I almost get this feeling like you look at sports and South Africans and you get this feeling almost like we're very shy about our success. It's almost like we, we look at everybody else and we adore everybody else apart from ourselves. Do you find that as well? Is that the other thing? Is that humbleness? I don't know if it's humbleness or like the Americans are very proud and like we're the best and like we're gonna own this and, and yeah, as a nation, we we are we are we are not that proud, and and I think there's there's a lot behind that. I mean, um, I think a lot of people, all the years of apartheid, it was embarrassing and shameful to be South African. You know, mm. uh, it, we we've never really been grown up. Certainly, my generation never grew up mm. feeling proud and loud about South Africa. You know, mm. so I, I think there's that. I think the U.S. When I when I look now at what's 
being made visible in their culture, I think a lot of people are horrified because the story of America is not the same as the reality of America. That's starting to become evident. But nevertheless, people grow up in that environment. So I think the national pride is something that um, people desperately need and want to feel, and they can feel it. Uh, as I say, it only became evident to me through actually having it shoved in my face over and over and over again. And by the way, us being called, I mean, we, we have an office in Switzerland, but a lot of organizations from all over the world call us in specifically because we know how to deal with complexity and diversity, mm. specifically, and chaos. Mm. So um, a lot of our big work in Switzerland and Australia in particular, but in fact, yeah, was specifically they wanted us because we were South African and we know how to deal with these things. It's in our blood. They said, you've got to share. You have no idea what you say. Everything you say is just like amazing because well, certainly in Switzerland, things are very, you know, calm <laughs> often. Bureaucratic. Bureaucratic. Yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. You know, when things go wrong, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult for them. So I also noticed that you did, you did some training in Japan, which I thought was really interesting. And you did it for the manufacturing industry, which I thought it was even more interesting because I thought those guys had it can ban and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I thought they had it down with the coaching and the management, but what was that about? Well, so that wasn't in Japan. That was with uh, Toyota Tusho, who is the company that takes the cars after they come out of the factory into okay. the, so that was here. But, but I did also do some manufacturing um, work with the university, with the GSB uh, to the lean, you know, the lean Institute yeah. Africa. Yeah. So I went, um, we went to study all their production techniques in Japan. Yes. And um, uh, yeah. So, so but coming back to the operation here, I think people, uh, they, there's so much that the Japanese bring in to the culture of um, innovation, agility, uh, you know, the, the, this new way of working. And it's, it's clever how they, you know, they chose to share the process with the West, but they didn't share the underlying philosophy. And only now are we seeing that the secret to their Kanban and the, all their manufacturing techniques is this culture of coaching. So the, the coaching kata, the coaching approach. Um, we worked quite a bit with the Lean Institute to say, how can we marry uh, the, the Lean coaching approach or, you know, with um, human being coaching? Because uh, so the Lean orientation is it's a socioeconomic contract. It's supposed to look at the the technical side, can I coach the technical side, but also can I coach the person? And so all our training, particularly in the lean side, is very strong on the technical side, but not much around the person. Um, we had a massive dialogue and argument with uh, Dr. Norman Fall, the professor, uh, you know, the Lean Institute, because I, I, I was saying, we need to ask the person, so how are you feeling? He's like, no, 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 we cannot ask somebody. <laughs> how we cannot do it. And we had a debate for ages about the importance of that question, because when somebody has just made a, a production error, yeah. um, so we did some a lot of work on the production line of a different vehicle manufacturer uh, yeah. quite recently here in South Africa. And we, we realized that production errors are made by human beings. And yeah. the, the foremen are never told or the supervisors are never, sh are never trained to ask the person what do you, what do you think or what are you feeling now you know what happened to you it was always process based yeah. and when they started asking people would say well i'm i'm moving this tire with my hands instead of with the the control thing that i'm supposed to use because i can do it faster and this way i feel more comfortable and they'd never done it they would just book the guy for not using the right equipment so so simple um, questions around the human being behind a process is a massive part of a coaching culture. And, and there, are, there are many manufacturing environments where that is not encouraged at all. Are you seeing an impact in terms of performance, underlying impact from performance? So all those other areas, happiness and, you know, autonomy, but are you seeing that coaching 
is driving, is there evidence that it's driving greater impact in an organization? Are you seeing that? So we have seen when we come in and we do a large intervention that works over, you know, so you can see a sort of a, a bigger scale impact. We have seen a definite um, improvement in performance because what happens is people feel more engaged uh, because they get spoken to like a human being, they get listened to. And when I am listened to, I feel seen and heard. So that's the, the driving need of every human being is to be seen and heard. And if you as a leader can just take that extra minute to just pause and say, well, how's it going at home, you know, or just something, or just listen that extra longer and say, tell me a bit more about that. Suddenly, oh, they're interested in me. I feel seen and I feel heard. Suddenly I come alive. And then that aliveness is what allows me to be more alert and to pay attention and to contribute. And of course, once I've got the contribution, then you have more activity and so on. So the spiral goes. So if you as a leader can allow people to feel seen and heard, you will be shifting their, their experience and therefore their motivation fundamentally. So um, and I've heard this before as well, but it's sometimes you forget it, right? Because you're in your own little world of chaos and anxiety and fears and thinking of the future. So it's, it's taking that step back and just taking those moments. So, I mean, we spoke at the beginning of, as well, and you were saying how moving from the old world to the virtual world has been a big shift for you and also for us as well. But you're saying that you've learned how to make that benefit people in terms of the learning and the outcomes because that's really the end of the day if people can get the impact they're looking what what are, what are some of the things that you've seen or experienced with that so we realized um don't sit on screen and drone along you know, you know don't sit with a powerpoint and a little square and talk at people mm. um work in a very engaging way so what we've done is because we don't have the costs of a of a, a bricks and mortar venue we invest that now in bringing extra coaches on board so we have for a group uh, we've got a, a group of 35 people we're doing at the moment um, I've got 12 coaches who work with me and we we sit online and I'll do a show I'll send them all the readings beforehand they read it yeah. and then I will um, talk about the theory I'll deepen it, I'll draw some things, I might show a slide occasionally, but never more than 15 minutes at a time. And mm. then I will say, okay, now go and apply that theory to yourself. And mm. you break away into small groups and each group has a coach every mm. second or third time. So they, 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 they'll not only have, and they move around all the time. So there's rich personal connection, there's deep listening, and it's fascinating stuff because they're working with themselves, they're learning about themselves. Mm. and and I, um, what people at the moment are craving some kind of connection with others because we have this transactional environment. We're at home. We just got our families, maybe some other people at work, but often there's no visual. All right. But they can come in here and they can really share deeply of themselves and be seen and heard and hear of somebody else. It gives you such an amazing feeling. I still remember the first retreat I went on virtual retreat after lockdown after like two months it just so happened I had a retreat that that became virtual and I sat there and I, it was like I came alive because I was deeply engaging with myself and others so we set that up um, and then of course having extra faculty means people can have uh, you know somebody with a with a more experienced voice in it as well so people don't feel adrift and then it's in out in out lots of activity lots of engagement and of course break every every hour for 10 minutes mm. but i mean when you're telling me i was thinking of my young children again i was thinking because i've got this theory that there's a lot of things that are broken in the world and we need to re-engineer them and, and fix them and one of them for me you know i often think about education i think it's so precious because I remember when my first, my son was born, I was 24 turning 25 and I was reading a book at the time. It was really interesting. And I thought to myself, why isn't this sort of knowledge being shared with young people? And it was actually like finance. It was like rich dad, poor dad. And I was like, well, it was so easy to understand. It was a good analogy. 
um, and it really sets you how to manage your money in a, in a sort of easy way. And, and so why aren't children of today, are we learning all these other things, but practical things like how to deal with money um, and your finances and the salary, these, these skills that everybody should really learn, um, how do we teach people that better? And, and so I look at the, the school system. I often see people who come out of school, go to university, and they start a job. And a lot of the skills they learn in university and school, they're not able to apply them or they, you know, they don't have the skills for the work environment. And so I, I listened to you working with corporates and um, executives, and I think, what are the learnings that we could kick back to our schools that we could easily implement in our school systems? Is it something that you think needs to be improved? I mean, you work with the university, you work with MBA faculty mm. members. Are you seeing that there needs to be a shift? You know, um, definitely, because I've seen how... Uh, even foreign universities, even the, the big American universities are struggling to adapt to online learning or mm -hmm. teaching, sorry, online teaching. And the kind, the quality of work they're putting out there is horrific. They, 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 they just stand, because, you know, um, when you're at university, you know what they say is if you can't do, then, um, uh, then what do they say? If you can't do, then teach. If you can't teach, then lecture. Okay. That's what's the sort of, so, because you know you arrive you stand in front of this hall of 400 students and you just talk at them and then you go that's that's how many lecturers lecture okay mm -hmm. but so now they're just doing that on screen and students are going this is not good enough this mm -hmm. is not what i signed up for because i now not only have to sit and watch somebody drone on at me on this inanimate screen i also have no personal interaction with my fellow students which is you know a huge part of it and i don't have that cross learning I think the challenge in South Africa, I've heard of amazing schools that have, have taken to the online format and are doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. um, but those seem to be more in the private space yeah. because I know that um, my son's school, for example, they, they have students who, who don't have access to broadband or to Wi-Fi, so they cannot use anything with a screen. So, they, they are just desperately waiting for the day they can come back to the classroom and all their stuff is being done via, you know, podcast and mm. um, there's a Q&A session, uh, mm. you know, but it's, it's all being done in a very minimalist way. And I think, yeah, that is a major problem. I think the one thing if, if this government could get right would be free access to, uh, you know, broadband mm. for all mm. students all uh, mm. scholars, uh, you know, learners, whatever we're supposed to call them now, I think mm. would be great. Um, and there are some amazing projects that are working. And I think that's the one you may have heard about with um, school principals and leaders, mm. a school, yeah, leaders in the education environment to try and support them. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I know we're a bit clock for time, we started late. So I, I, I want to wrap up with the with a good one, which is, you know, your view on South Africa and Africa in the future, because we don't really know. But I mean, what is your what is your sense going outside looking at some of the leaders the challenges there? What is your sense of the future for South Africa and, and Africa in general? What are your, what's your sort of sentiment? Look, I'm so optimistic. I, I'm, I'm one of the, I'm on the optimistic camp. So yeah. I, you know, every time I come home from Europe or wherever, to yeah. Africa, I get so excited because the energy here is fundamentally different. We have the youngest population in the world. I think the, the, the continent has the youngest population in the world. It's, it's, it is a continent where there are fundamentally different opportunities than anywhere else on the planet. Um, it, it has the capacity for enormous terribleness and enormous wonderfulness. Mm -hmm. The secret is, I mean, I was so excited when I went to West Africa and um, Cote d'Ivoire and there, and I saw with my own eyes, I'd heard about the West African, you know, um, uh, uh, this conglomerate and so on, but I hadn't really realized, I mean, they're, they're as strong as the European Union, stronger. They've been going longer than, you know, all those countries um, working together, and, and their growth rates was at that stage was like six or 7%. And I was like, 
we don't even appreciate that in South Africa. We sit at the bottom and we think we're special, but actually Africa as a whole has the potential to be the powerhouse that, for example, West Africa has been driving extraordinary returns mm. and, um, and why growth. That, why do you think that is though, Janine? Why do you think that there's so many South Africans who are so preoccupied with going to either Europe, Australia, New Zealand, or all the States, they're not realizing the opportunities. Is it because they're looking at the problems and not at the opportunities? Yeah, yeah. And we, but I mean, you know, we, we, we are also world best at problems. <laughs> Let's not <laughs> say. <laughs> and I think it just becomes overwhelming. I think particularly if, for example, one has had a negative incident or something has happened, you know, people have their own reasons. Yeah. Um, but I don't think anybody would argue that the standard of living here is still good um and there's just the the there has been a lot of opportunity um mm. despite even though yes the news i mean it is discouraging it is discouraging what's happening here but and i mean if someone wanted to work with you do they go to the center of coaching website is it is it the center of coaching or do they go to gsb how do they are you still doing your two-day courses and your six-month and yeah? So you've got the individual side and then you've got the yes, yes. So the center for coaching, yes. So we we do have a website. Um, it's uh, 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 it's could do with an upgrade, but anyway, all the information is there. <laughs> but I suppose just to summarize, you know, we have um a whole section where we do what we call public programs education. So we teach people how to become coaches. So if you want to learn how to become a coach, uh, an accredited coach through the International Coach Federation with a USA-based certificate, then you come to Center for Coaching for that. But then we also do one-on-one -on -one coaching and tailored uh, coaching interventions and leadership development interventions for organizations. Um, so people can get to us either through the GSB website or directly to our own one wow it was great talking to you i've got lots of more questions but i know that time's up so um and i can't wait to to do this again at some stage it was really insightful and i'll be the best dad ever to my kids tonight i know i will after this <laughs> well thank you so much it's been a real pleasure thank you thank you for your time pleasure all the best bye, bye.